Well, you guys might remember this, but a number of years ago, there was at least what I thought was an absolutely brilliant advertising campaign for an investment firm named E.F. Hutton. There was a whole bunch of different commercials, but they all had the same tagline, and they all kind of went sort of along the same lines. And they went something like this. There's a couple, and they're going to meet for lunch, and they're going to meet in this really, really busy downtown restaurant at a really, really busy time of day. So they show up for lunch, for example, and there's people waiting to be seated, and there's people at every single table, and there's waiters, and there's waitresses, and there's busboys, and there's cars driving by. And the camera zooms in in sort of the midst of the din of this restaurant on these two people who have met, and they're talking, and they're talking about money because, I mean, it's an investment firm commercial. And so one of the guys says, well, you know, my broker says blah, blah, blah. And then the other guy says, well, my broker is E.F. Hutton. And E.F. Hutton says, and everything stops. Every car driving by stops. Every fly buzzing around stops. Every waiter and waitress and busboy stops. Every conversation stops. And the whole place kind of leans in because when E.F. Hutton talks, what happens? People listen. I will remember that till the day I die. It's brilliant. It's great advertising. All right, now I'm going to ask you one of the most difficult questions, at least in American evangelicalism. You ready? Here it is. When Jesus Christ talks about money, do you listen? Do I listen? It's an interesting question, isn't it? I mean, does everything in your restaurant stop? Do you press in, you know? Do you? You know, it's a kingdom question. I mean, we've been studying the kingdom of God together for weeks now. In fact, this is the eighth message. And the reality is that your answer to that question and my answer to that question has absolutely everything to do with the advancement of the kingdom of God. Your answer to that question has something to do with the credible proclamation of the kingdom of God and with our ability as believers not only to proclaim forgiveness of sins, but also to do battle against sin, as we've talked about, to deal with sickness, to deal with hunger, to deal with poverty, to deal with injustice, and to deal with it all in the name of Jesus. And in dealing with it, to give evidence to this world that is real and visible of our invisible God and of His invisible kingdom. Your answer to that question has everything to do with the advancement of the kingdom of God, and not just through this church. This is not a fundraising message. We're not going to give out cards and say, okay, we want everybody to make a pledge. to None of that. It has everything to do with the advancement of the kingdom through you, personally, individually, with your husband or wife, with your son or daughter, with your friends, with the people that you work with, the people in your little world who so desperately need to see, as we said last week, a people who trust in something or something, someone other than they do. They need to see it, and they need to see it in me, and they need to see it in you. It's a kingdom question, but it's a difficult question. See, when E.F. Hutton talks, people listen, and we get that, but when Jesus talks, what I want you to wrestle with today, and it's a wrestling match, trust me on this one, is do you listen? Do I listen? Because He talks about it quite frequently. We pick up our study this morning in Luke chapter 16, where Luke tells us this. He says in the first little phrase, he says, And Jesus 
also said to the disciples, now stop there for a minute because Luke is telling us who Jesus is talking to, okay, saying hello, telling the story to his disciples. But here's the deal, the disciples are not the only guys in the audience, and we know that because at the very end of this teaching, we go to verse 14, and what does he say? He says, the Pharisees who were, uh uh-oh, lovers of money heard all these things, meaning they took in all this same teaching that the disciples took in and all this same teaching that you and I are about to take in. They took it in too, and here's the difference. They ridiculed Jesus. What is Luke doing? Because he's a poet. He's an artist. He's not just writing things down and narrative. He's saying, I want you guys to know something about this teaching that's dead center in the middle. He's saying there are disciples, they're on one end of this teaching, and then there are lovers of money, and they're on the other end of this teaching, and he's telling you, you can't be both. You've got to pick. You have to choose. And you know the difference by the reaction. See, there, nobody has any problem with their ears in this story. Everybody hears the story. Everybody hears the teaching. The difference is that the lovers of Jesus internalize it and reorient their life in light of it. And the other guys don't. Jesus also said to the disciples, but they're not the only ones in the crowd. There was a rich man. So here comes the story who had a manager. The idea being that this man took his great wealth and he placed it into the hands of a manager to manage. But the manager, and this is really important, in and of himself owned absolutely nothing. That is clearly implied in this story. Now, I think it's also clearly implied that, you know, he was amply provided for by means of his management of the wealthy man's stuff, but by himself, he's the owner of nothing. The rich man owns, and the manager manages in the story. And what's important about that is that Jesus is going to get to the end of the story, and he's going to go, okay, uh, you guys in the crowd who are the lovers of Jesus, you need to learn from this manager, He's the guy that we're supposed to, at least in most respects in this story, not in all, identify with. The idea being that everything that I have and everything that you have, great or small, whatever it may add up to be, is the Lord's. And our role is that of managers. Jesus also said to the disciples, who were not the only folks in the crowd, there was a rich man who had a manager, and here we go, charges were brought to him that this man, this manager, was what? Was wasting his possessions. And I love what Jesus does next, because what Jesus does next is he doesn't say how. He just says that's it. He doesn't say he was wasting his possessions, and oh, by the way, here's how he did it. You know, he was skimming some off the top, and he was taking some kickbacks over here, and he was kind of cooking the books so that he could store some up for himself. He doesn't give any description whatsoever about the wasting of his master's resources. He just says, that's what he did. He's intentionally ambiguous. Now, he's not ambiguous about the fact that we're all managers. He's not ambiguous about the fact that we own nothing, but God owns it all, and we're just here to manage it. He certainly isn't ambiguous about the fact that our duty is to manage it in such a way as to further the kingdom of the rich man, in our case, of God. He's not ambiguous about any of those things. He's not even ambiguous about the fact that it's actually, believe it or not, in our best interests to do exactly that, because what happens is this guy mismanages and he loses his job. That creates a real issue for him in this story. But he's not at all ambiguous. What he's ambiguous about, rather, is exactly how he mismanages. It's like the story comes to us and says, guys, survey your life, inventory your life, and ask yourself, is there mismanagement? Is there a wasting 
of the resources with which you've been entrusted. Jesus also said to the disciples, who again are not the only guys in the crowd, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And what is the reaction of the rich man? What would your reaction be? What's just? It says, and he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be manager. So he fires him and then he demands an accounting, okay, which creates a real crisis for this guy. It's like, "Uh uh-oh, I don't own anything and I've gotten kind of real accustomed to my lifestyle here working for the wealthy man, but my working for the wealthy man is almost done. I mean, he's fired me, but he hasn't taken my keys yet. The deal is this guy has to do an accounting so that he can hand over all the books and account for everything, and the wealthy man can go, okay, great, now I know where everything is, and I know exactly how much I have, and I can hand all this stuff off to the next manager, and what's clearly understood within the context of this story is that that's going to take a while to do, and that during that little window of opportunity, this dishonest manager still has the ability to manage the rich man's wealth, which creates this question for this guy. He's looking at a time not too far down the road. I mean, it's a short window of opportunity before he has to hand in his accounting and his keys when he's going to be unemployed. And so he starts scheming, you see, and he asks himself, all right, what can I do today while I still have control of the wealthy man's, well, wealth to set myself up for that moment when I turn in my accounting and turn in the keys and I'm destitute? Jesus said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions and he called to him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me and since apart from him, I own absolutely nothing. So he does this little self-appraisal. He's really honest with himself. He says, I'm not strong enough to dig. Manual labor is just, you know, not his thing. And I'm ashamed to beg. So he's too proud, and he knows it. And what's clearly implied also in the story is, you know, I mean, after this little encounter with the wealthy man, he's not going to get another managing position. So he takes this self-appraisal. He sort of examines the whole situation, and he says, I've decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, when this little period of time during which I still have control of all the resources of the wealthy man ends and I turn in my accounting and keys, people may receive me into their houses. I will be taken care of. He makes a plan. And here it is says, so summoning his master's debtors one by one, you know, you can just envision them all lined up outside the door of his office for an emergency meeting. And there they all are, you know, he's going to make his accounting, quote unquote. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first one, first guy in line, how much do you owe my master? And this debtor said a hundred measures of oil, which is the annual yield of about 150 olive trees or about three years of wages. It's not an insignificant sum. How much do you owe my master? He said, about a hundred measures of oil. And the manager said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly. Do you hear that? There is an urgency to this little window of opportunity. And this guy, this manager understands that. The manager said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. So he cuts it in half. 
And then the manager said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, well, 100 measures of wheat, which is enough to feed about 150 people for a year or about seven and a half years worth of wages. Lots, okay? And he said to that guy, take your bill and write down 80. And so on and on he went, calling them into his office, debtor by debtor by debtor by debtor, you know, releasing them from significant portions of their debt. Why? What is this guy doing? He's taking his master's debtors and he's indebting them to himself. It was understood in this culture that, you know, if you were generous towards somebody, if you were benevolent towards somebody, that they were on the hook to be benevolent and generous toward you should you come calling. And this guy's planning to come calling. He's going to spend a few years with this guy and then he's going to move up the street and spend a few years with this guy. And I mean, he set himself up. He's liberating his master's debtors that he might obligate them to himself. It is an absolutely wicked plan, but you got to admit it's brilliant. I mean, it is absolutely brilliant. And Jesus agrees with its brilliance. For he then says, in verse 8, he says, the master commended the dishonest manager, but why? For his dishonesty? No. He commends him for his shrewdness. And that word shrewdness speaks of wisdom or sensibility or prudence. Jesus says the master commended the dishonest manager, not for his dishonesty, but for his shrewdness. And then he looks at his disciples, who are not the only guys in the crowd, but they're the ones that he's looking to talk to. And he says, for the sons of this world are more shrewd. They demonstrate a greater wisdom. They demonstrate a greater sensibility. They demonstrate a greater prudence with their own generation, with their own dealings, with their own kind, than the sons of light. He's saying, then do my people. He's telling us that there's something we ought to learn from this guy. But what is that? He says, and I tell you, make friends for yourself just like this guy did, but using the resources God has given you. During this little window of opportunity, at the end of which, by the way, is a much longer stint of time called eternity. He's saying, use it now. He says, make friends for yourself using God's resources by means, he says, of unrighteous wealth, which is simply his way of referring to the wealth of this world. And it means literally the wealth of this world, which tends to corrupt. And you're like, well, who does it corrupt? Well, it corrupts me. The reality is it corrupts all of us. It's like this substance that our hearts are not quite capable of dealing with. And he speaks of it in a demeaning way, not that it's unimportant, but he's going to compare it to a different kind of wealth. He's like, that stuff there, unrighteous wealth. He says, make friends for yourselves now while you have the chance by means of unrighteous wealth. So that when it fails, so that when your life is over and this window of opportunity is closed and you enter into that much longer period of time, you know, you've turned in your keys and you hand in your accounting, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. You might receive, he's saying, an eternal reward. Jesus is coming to us and he's saying, look, you guys, all of us are managers. We're managers of what it is that God has given us. We don't own anything in and of ourselves and we're called to manage what he's given us in his best interests and it's in our best interests as an aside to do exactly that. We're to build his kingdom. And he's calling us to realize that we have a window of opportunity within which to do so called this life at the end of which is eternity. 
And he's saying, guys, what a difference. Think about eternity. Invest in eternity. And he's saying, look, you can take what the Lord gives you in this life and use it in such a way as to set yourself up for an eternal reward and blessing. But we don't need to be dishonest to do it. We need to be honest, mostly with ourselves. And lastly, he's hoping that we will be shrewd enough and wise enough and sensible enough and prudent enough to see the opportunity for what it is and then to jump all over it. Jesus says, and I tell you, make friends for yourselves like this guy in the story by means of unrighteous wealth. Use the wealth of this world in such a way, saying, so that when it fails and your life is over and you no longer have the ability to do that anymore, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. You will gain, if you will, an eternal reward and inheritance. And then he says, one who is faithful in a very little. That's interesting because, again, he's speaking of whatever it is that we have or amass in this life, however great or however small it may be, however large or tiny your pile is. He's saying whatever it is, it's very little compared to what he's offering. He says, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. And if then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth... Who will entrust to you the what? The true riches. That's the reward. The wealth that doesn't diminish, the wealth that doesn't disappear, it doesn't depreciate, and it's not just yours for a little period of time after which you die and then that becomes somebody else's. It's true riches. And he goes on and says, and if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, for that's what this wealth is, belongs to the Lord. It's another's. If you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which actually is your own is the idea. And then he closes with a statement. He says, no servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot, he says, serve God and money. And then Luke ends with that same verse that we started with. Jesus tells the story to the disciples and they stand on one side of all of this teaching, the lovers of Christ. And then he ends it with the Pharisees who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and what's their reaction? Is it to have their little restaurant full of activity come to a stop and pressing in, you know, even the mosquitoes are like, yeah, what's he going to say? They ridiculed him. They're lovers of money and lovers of Jesus, and you can't be both, is what he's saying. And so we get all jacked up when E.F. Hutton talks, or at least E.F. Hutton wants you to think that that would be a good idea. But what about the Lord? What about Him? I may have shared this with you guys, but uh, when I was a kid, um, my dad, uh, he was kind of a wealthy man, truthfully, uh, as an investment property, actually as a number of investment properties, owned some fruit groves out in the Redlands, which was about 20 miles south of where I grew up. And uh, that created kind of a job for me. Actually, a lot of his investments created jobs for me, not something I was always excited about, to be very frank. But this one was kind of a good deal, you know, and I remember a lot of Saturday mornings I'd be laying in bed and it'd be just before the sun would come up, which is never a good time to disturb a 13-year-old. I don't know if you've realized that, but um, 
But I'd hear him all the way down at the end of the hall, and even to this day, he has this really stupid whistle, not like one you carry in your pocket or, you know, around your neck on a chain, but like he actually whistles with his mouth, this really, really dorky whistle. And I, I would do it for you, except I can't. I'd st- bust out laughing, trying. But, but the deal is, it's distinctive to him, and he knows that it's annoying, and that's why he so delights in doing it. So anyway... It's particularly annoying when you're 13 at 6 in the morning. So he would do this whistle, and I knew that that meant that it was in my best interest to get out of bed. So I had learned that. And so I would get out of bed and, you know, get dressed, and I kind of knew what the deal was. I'd walk in the kitchen, and there'd be a big cooler, you know, and full of enough food for an army for a week. And my mom would have all that stuff ready for me to go, and we'd load that up in this truck that we had and about three or four machetes and a pair of work gloves, and we'd drive out to the Redlands and mostly say nothing the whole way because I'm just tired, you know. And we'd get out there and pull up to the gate of one of these groves, and uh, he'd get out and unlock the gate and drive me into the center of the grove where the big diesel engine was that powered the sprinkler systems. And uh, we'd unload the machetes and the gloves and the cooler, and then he'd leave, and he'd lock me in, and he wouldn't come back till the end of the day. And here's my job, okay? My job was cut down all of the brush and the vines that would grow up between the trees. I mean, obviously, the mower could mow between the rows of trees, but then you have tree after tree after tree that sit in those rows, and the mower doesn't get in there. So my job was take the machetes, cut down the brush, pull it out, take the machete, cut down the brush, pull it out, pull it out, ball it all up, and we'll take it away. That's the idea. And what was good about this whole scenario was the compensation agreement that we made. See, he sat down with me on the front end and said, look, here's the deal. I'm not going to pay you by the hour. Not going to do it. What I'm going to do is I'm going to pay you by how much you get done and how well you do it. So here's the deal. You start in one corner of the grove and you work your way row by row by row by row. As long as you do a good job, the more rows you do, the more you get paid. And I pretty, you know, I mean, I'm not that slow. So I figured out real quick, I could make a whole lot more money working hard row by row by row by row than I could ever make by the hour. It was incredibly motivating to me. But why was it motivating? It was motivating because there were certain things about my dad that I believed to be true, like the fact that he exists. I mean, you know, he had driven me out there so that I didn't have to spend a lot of time worrying about that. I believed he was going to come back at the end of the day. I believed that when he came back at the end of the day, we were going to take a walk together, tree by tree, row by row. I will never forget the day that we did this, and I hacked my name into the side of a big avocado tree. I didn't get paid a lot that day. I was such a dope. I did it right where he would pull in with the truck. Like So as he's driving in, he sees... Tom, on the side of this tree, you know? Just stupid. I should have buried it way back somewhere if I was going to do that. But anyway, I thought he'd take a look. You know what else? I really believed he had the means to pay me for my work. He wasn't going to have to take out a loan. He wasn't going to have to mortgage anything. He was going to pull his wallet out and say, you know, son, you did a good job. We got done seven rows today. According to our agreement, here you go. And I believed he would actually do that. You know, E.F. Hutton comes and we get excited. And Jesus comes. And he says, you know, being God and all, I've got some things to say too. 
little different perspective, but he makes you an investment opportunity. He's saying, hey, you're a manager, amply provided for, fine, but it's all mine. And you can waste it or you can use it in this life to set yourself up for a far greater eternal blessing down the road. This little life, short window of opportunity, guys, and we ought to be a whole lot more urgent about it than we are. But here's the deal. That only looks like a sweet offer if you have eyes of faith. That only sounds good, you know, your little restaurant stops moving and shaking and everything freezes if you're hearing it with ears of faith. That's something you embrace with a heart of faith. It's a kingdom question. And I'd ask you, when Jesus Christ talks, not E.F. Hutton, he wants your money. Jesus owns it. Do you listen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your kingdom and for its glory and for your word and for your willingness to talk to us about everything. Lord, we thank you for opportunity and we ask for faith. Father, rest our hearts away from the things that we have served more than you. And help us to love you more and them less. And let that translate into our lives. Not only that we might know you more, not only that we might be more productive for your kingdom, but that you might even bless us in greater measure for all of eternity. We thank you, Father, for your word and for your spirit. Give us eyes of faith to see it. Give us ears of faith to hear it. Give us hearts that embrace you as our treasure and as our eternal portion. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.